You are listening to a podcast from The National. In the last fortnight, a court in the Iraqi capital of Baghdad has sentenced 11 French nationals to death for belonging to ISIS. The case has reignited a contentious debate about foreign fighters who joined the militant group and what should be done with them. France says the men should be tried in the country where their crimes were committed. But France is also opposed to the death penalty, has campaigned around the world to end the punishment and is legally prevented from being involved in any court case where the sentence might be handed down. In Iraq, the punishment for belonging to a terror group is death by hanging. Paris is now in a difficult position. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, James Haynes-Young, the National's foreign editor. And this week, we're looking at what Europe should do about its foreign fighters. ISIS has existed in one form or another since 1999, but emerged rapidly to become the most successful terror group in history after the start of the Syrian war in 2011. It drew in fighters, resources and gained ground. Its seemingly unstoppable ascent in Syria gave it prominence, especially for the brutal treatment of those that didn't fit with its warped interpretation of Islam. But when the group spilled over the border and seized swathes of Iraq almost overnight, the world jumped into action. The group was threatening to capture Baghdad and erase a national boundary that had existed for nearly a hundred years. International powers formed a military coalition to destroy the group's self-declared proto-state. But by this point, ISIS was drawing in hundreds of foreign recruits every month. Around the world, people were disappearing from their homes, lives and families, only to resurface in Syria and Iraq. Some had long harboured sympathies to militant groups. But families of others said that the changes happened rapidly and they never believed their loved one would run away to join one of the most extreme groups on the planet. Particular cases stood out, like that of 15-year-old British national Shamima Begum and two of her school friends, both of whom were later killed in airstrikes in Syria, when they ran away in 2015 to join ISIS. Four years after she left, Begum is back in the headlines because she's now been detained in Syria and wants to come home. But more on that later. By 2017, Iraqi and international forces had driven ISIS out of the country. Then, in early 2019, the final victory was declared against the ISIS so-called caliphate in Syria. In the last weeks of the campaign, tens of thousands of fighters and their families surrendered. The Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces in Syria now say they're struggling to cope with the detention camps holding upwards of 70,000 former ISIS women and children. The military-aged men were mostly being separated and held in overcrowded prisons. Today, the international community is grappling with its response to captured ISIS members. But to really understand these issues, we have to look back at how we got here, and more specifically, how the hundreds who joined the groups got there. I spoke to Hanif Qadir, who after 9-11 left his family to join Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. He told me about what motivated him to leave, and his journey back to the UK, where he's since been working with de-radicalisation programmes for the last 15 years. Distraught at the the fact that you know people from my faith could 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 launch hijacks and, and terrorist attacks on the World Trade Centers uh, and kill you know a couple of thousand or three thousand people. But um, what led after that was the war on terror and the way it was orchestrated and the, the killing of thousands and thousands and thousands of innocent women and children in Afghanistan and then Iraq was something that I felt was wasn't was not necessary, but also. Um, the killing of innocents seemed to be coming across as, as revenge on, on, on the Muslim people. And the, the images that were coming out of Afghanistan and the, the intensity of the bombing was unjustifiable. 
Um, so I wanted to do some humanitarian work and try to, you know, alleviate the suffering of those in Afghanistan. I didn't really mind who they were because, as far as I was concerned, they were doing uh, the job that everybody else should have been doing, and that was protecting the innocents. Whether they were Al Qaeda or whether they were anybody else, it didn't really matter to me at the time because it was like me wanting to do something that was right by my fellow human being and my fellow Muslim. At that point, were you still in the UK, or had you um, gone to Afghanistan? No, I was still in the UK. I was a businessman. I wasn't. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a young person. I was, you know, middle aged. Mm-hmm. Say, I was quite. You know, um, sensible. I knew what I was doing. It was about you know doing my bit for society and for humanity. And what was your transition to coming back to the you know, civilian life? What was that like? It was difficult. I don't think I'd left my family. I left my business, which I would ordinarily wouldn't have even dared, even thought of. Even my brothers, my sisters, my mother, my children. You know, it was it was it was unthinkable for me to do that, but. Because I was so emotionally driven, I, I'd done that. And then coming back with the realization that, gosh, I could have, they could have lost me and I could have never, ever seen these people again, you know, and, and, and how sad would that have been? Because I was led to believe that my faith, you know, and, and my, my, um, my duty as a Muslim and a human being pushed me in that direction where I became inconsiderate to my actual duties. And how do you think that the people that you've worked with that have, you know, experienced some of these things or have been thinking about joining these groups or or are susceptible to it, how do they respond to your story? So it, it depends on the individual. Every case is obviously different, and everybody's got their own you know, uh, reasons for, for doing, you know, getting involved. And, but a lot of the time, it's, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a common thread, and that's about emotions, it's about theology, it's about their, their, their sense of responsibility, but also their sense of you know, wanting to be part of, of something much more stronger with an unseen reward um and this is something that i talk about is that you can't see the reward you believe in the reward so much that you forget to realize your actual duties here or, or with your parents or with your brothers or with your sisters or with your you know um with your companions and you you know you get so clouded uh, your judgment gets so clouded because you want this you want that unseen reward which is promised if you get involved irrespective of whether it's you know, being, being marginalized or whether you're from a deprived family or whether you've had some kind of uh, trauma in your life uh, and people are offering you a way out or whether you're just simply emotional about what's going on um, and, and driven by theology, using theology as a vehicle to sort of meet your end goal. I talk about this and I talk about the, you know, the, 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 the sleepless nights that you're probably having, you know, thinking about how you're going to get involved, what, what's going to be the end goal. You don't even want to think about death because you haven't considered that. You've already considered it as a fact that it's going to be a, a transition to, for me to the to the unseen reward. And I talk about that. And sometimes I just say, and I, and I leave and walk away, and that, leave, that leaves them with a sense of curiosity is that how the hell does this guy know what I'm thinking about? How does he even comprehend that? You know, even if I'm 20% right, how, you know, like the, the question is that, how do you know that? So I allow for them to come back to me and then talk a bit more. And it's about having a conversation, a frank and open, clear conversation about what's going on in their life or what they're feeling. And then it allows me to sort of show them a path away from that because I can say, well, give them examples of my own personal involvement, but also the involvement of others. And then I'll ask questions. It's like when you're going into a room and having a meeting with these guys, you get searched, obviously. And they, and they say, yes, we do. I said, have you ever thought of searching them? And he says, no, why should I? I says, well, if they don't trust you, why should you trust them? So sometimes 
it's about really talking about things that do make sense. During that period when you came back, um, you know, it, it sounds like you were sort of still grappling with some of the same things that led you to go there. What worked for you in terms of kind of reconciling some of those big questions that you were having? Well, in terms of what actually turned me around completely? Yeah, exactly. Well, it was the fact that um, these people that I went and I saw in, you know, in, 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 in Afghanistan and in, in the border regions of Pakistan were, were using my religion to lie to young, young children. For instance, there was a young child that was being fitted to, for a suicide vest, and I actually thought that they're being you know, fitted for new clothes you know, that we provided the money for. And the young person was smiling and happy, and I asked her a few questions, and the guy translated to me that he's going to paradise to see his brothers and his mothers and all his friends. Because apparently uh, a stray bomb hit their village, and half of the village was, was, was obliterated, and he was one of the only survivors left. And it was like he misses his parents, he misses his friends, he misses his brothers and sisters. So he's gonna he's gonna go and meet them, and he's gonna make them happy by, you know, by by, by wearing this this new clothing, um, and just pushing the button. So then the kid didn't know he's gonna go and kill himself. For and me, that was the absolute turning point where the the urge to kill was so intense that it was the urge to kill one of the Arabs that was there who was doing this. So I was so appalled by that that, you know, I had to I had to sort of question that and it became very challenging. And they started and I knew that my religion didn't allow that. And the argument was is that, well, you know, God has provided these children for us as martyrs, where the where the where the Allied forces have got air forces and they've got, you know, drones. God has put these children at our disposal and I disagree with that. I completely disagree with that. There is no, and, and there's no justification for that in, in any kind of religious text. So that's what completely made me think that, you know, made me realize that these guys are taking our faith right out of context, but also abusing it to a point where, you know, they are the actual enemy of my religion. And I use that same, you know, process by, you know, engaging with other young men and women. And I talk through some of the paragraphs that probably read it, and I, I talk through some of the paragraphs that they haven't read, but they should have read, you know? Mm-hmm. And are we talking of religious texts? Yeah, so we're looking at the theological aspect of it as well. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, 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 I'm completely you know, committed on, on that. And I'm not a theologian, I'm not a scholar, I never think. But I'm completely you know, uh, satisfied with the successes that I've had over the years, is that although it could have been a different kind of reason for somebody joining, every time somebody does join, it, faith is used as a vehicle to drive their whims and their desires. And I always use the same faith as a vehicle to drive them back out of that. And it always works. There seems to be a conundrum about the effective methods to prevent further indoctrination and of the social and political desires to invest in such programs. Although ISIS has lost its territory in Syria and Iraq, the group has reverted to an insurgency with global terror networks, and it still has an ideological draw, even if people motivated can't go and join the state. Experts have warned that leaving thousands of members in the desert of eastern Syria or in Iraqi jails may seem like an easy option. However, it also risks leaving potential terror attack plotters and hundreds of militant fighters at large in fragile societies if they escape or are released. Before we can talk about the options, though, we need to go back to the basics. 
First, what is radicalization? Dr. Drew McCall is half Northern Irish and half Lebanese, two places familiar with extremism and violence. He spent years researching and working on the subject, and he's now a research fellow at Queen's University in Belfast. Is that it means the movement towards um, committing acts of violence, but I think that there has to be a really important uh, reframing of this term and this concept and what it means so we can um, stop mislabeling people who aren't actually going to become violent. The work on this um, on this line of inquiry together is that we constantly are um, haranguing ourselves about using the word radicalization. Because to be radical is to suggest something outside the box. And I push back at people who's, who claim that we must get, a, get rid of all kinds of radicalization or all kinds of radical thought because it leads to radicalization. That's, that's patently not true. The idea of radicalization as we know it now to commit to an act of violence, which is what you're asking, is is not a linear path, and it's usually quite a path that, that takes place over a sustained period of time. That can take people can take several jumps forward in the timeline, or they can take several steps back. It doesn't just work one way. On Facebook, we could automatically sort of clutch our pearls and also be concerned with a number of the comments that are going on there. But we would, but we shouldn't. That doesn't automatically mean that these people need to be arrested or that these people need to be uh, um, thrown into prison based on what they're saying and what they're believing. That's, that's why it makes it incredibly difficult to um, police this issue and to police your way out of this issue, that we have to understand that it's a societal-wide problem. There tends to be an approach to radicalization that it's uh, that we take it from the, the media's perspective that it's seen as this very alien concept that someone can commit to acts, extreme acts of violence. Um, usually we get, become most shocked whenever these people come from societies and backgrounds like the UK or other what we call more, more stable democracies. But if you were actually to look at something, um, and this is where my approach comes in, if you take uh, a key from the study of civil conflicts or civil wars or ethnic conflicts, whereas, of course, that we've seen in places like Northern Ireland and like Lebanon, two country case studies of mine, is that the breakdown of social fabric and barriers between communities actually facilitates and helps facilitate acts of violence that, in other words, would be completely unconscionable. So knowing that humans are can be instrumentalized to commit acts of violence, that we have to understand that also, that happens on individual scales as well. So whenever we look at radicalization, my approach is understanding that radicalization, just whenever we look for one cure-all answer about why it occurs, we usually find ourselves going off into the weeds and not coming up with any kind of answers. The reality is, is that uh, in research work with various different um, ex, uh, what we like to call in in the in the particular area of study is formers, meaning former extremists or former combatants, is that there's a great deal of understanding that can be learned about the process of radicalization. And most oftentimes this happens on an intrapersonal basis. So it's usually interpersonal or intrapersonal weaknesses or uh, vulnerabilities or marginalizations that different people experience um, in their everyday lives that are taken advantage of by potential recruiters for whatever the cause may be. And regardless of whether it is right-wing extremism or Islamist extremism or taking part in a civil conflict in somewhere like Lebanon, 
usually the instrumentalization towards violence happens along exactly the same kinds of uh, patterns that we see across the cases. So what you're saying in that is, you know, the idea um, that we often hear about of kind of lone wolf or uh, people being radicalized, you know, at home watching videos online, for example, and then deciding to go to Syria or to join into a, a civil war. You don't necessarily think that that holds out so much. Absolutely, I will say categorically, like the large majority of evidence about lone wolf terrorism does not hold out. Now, lone wolf terrorism and lone wolf acts of violence and radicalization have occurred. It's patently obvious in a number of different cases that we've seen across uh, different country contexts. Um, the synagogue shooter in Canada um, is the first one that springs to mind, but many others do as well. But overwhelmingly, the vast majority of them take uh, Occur, radicalization occurs in in social clusters where there usually is a, a recruiter or someone who has identified vulnerabilities in the particular person that they're trying to recruit. And also, I mentioned they happen in clusters, is that usually people influence one another. Um, the act of going to fight um, is a social act. It's one that people are seeking validation, uh, empowerment, um creation of their own agency. And sometimes this happens, and most oftentimes this happens in groups where friends share and explore ideas about their potential adventures together. So, and just as a small anecdotal piece of evidence is that I'm working with a, a fellow who worked in the, um, in the Belgium prison industry and working on de-radicalization projects estimated in the 300 cases that he worked with in 2017, only three were cases of lone wolf uh, radicalization. This sort of like the alien aspect of radicalization is that whereas most people don't want and most people are not capable of violence in and of themselves, is that it takes um, certain triggerings to 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 get them there. And whenever you can think back to your own experiences as a young person, um, how often did you do things because your friends also did them? And it works exactly the same way for uh, taking part as as ridiculous as it might seem because ideas travel and are more influential whenever they're given over by potential people that they trust. Prevention, ideally, um, but that takes a societal level approach to understanding about mental health issues and understanding how we can talk to people better and how we can make better approaches. Then there's the C part of CVE, the countering violent extremism, which is that is much more about being able to uh, take down radical content whenever we find it online to um, to ensure that we can, the much more policing aspect, that we have the necessary legislation in place, that we can treat people who have committed acts of violence in the appropriate manner in on foreign soil, which is a, a legal gray area. Um, also, if you look at that actually whenever you look at counter, um, specifically countering or de-radicalization programs, they are proven to work. Beyond the social aspects of extremist violence, nations are also under pressure from the public, many of whom feel a sense of betrayal towards the radicalised fighters. They chose to leave, so let them suffer the consequences. Anthony Dworkin is a senior policy fellow for human rights, democracy and justice at the European Council of Foreign Relations, and he points out that that's just not how justice works. Politicians are still under obligations to abide by international legal frameworks. Anthony tells us more about the legal and political ramifications at play. What we're talking about is hundreds of people who are citizens um, or dual nationals of European countries 
who left those countries to go and fight with the Islamic State, ISIS, um, in Iraq and Syria. So uh, now these people have been captured after the fall of the caliphate, um, and the most problematic ones are being held by the uh, Syrian Democratic Forces, the SDF, in Syria. So the question is, what responsibility do European countries have as far as their own nationals are concerned? I think a lot of the political response is being driven by the you know, clearly high level of public uh, hostility to the idea that these people will return. Um, and that's combined with the fact that there are genuine difficulties in deciding what to do with these people if they come back, because they're not just ordinary um, criminals who have committed a crime and subject to prosecution. They have, in a sense, as you suggest, kind of abandoned their country and gone to join a, a proto-state, uh, the Islamic State's caliphate, uh, in some cases to fight for it, um, in any case to join an entity whose beliefs are fundamentally hostile to the countries from which they came. Um, and so there is this sense that they have kind of moved over. But of course, they haven't taken up what we would see as nationality in another state that then has res responsibility for them. So they are in this kind of strange, difficult position where it's hard to classify exactly what they are. They remain legally citizens of our country. And yet there is this public feeling, as you say, that they've kind of abandoned and turned their back on the country. And in some cases even have kind of taken up arms against it or joined a, a hostile entity. Uh, so that's, that is the source of the problem. Um, and I think in order to accept and recognize that feeling, uh, European governments are going to have to proceed quite carefully, quite gradually. Um, we're seeing some countries beginning with what are perhaps the, the cases where there's the strongest humanitarian reason for bringing people back, which is the case of children. Um, you know, there's much less of a sense in their case that they had any choice in the matter. Either they were infants when their parents took them, or most often they were actually born in Syria or in Iraq. And there, I think there is a kind of post-traumatic stress program um, that would seem to be uh, a necessary part of the response, because what they've been through in their young lives is obviously a kind of terrible experience. Uh, and so in those cases, I think that degree of very intensive help is going to be necessary then, as you say, really, I think those probably are the main options. Uh, programs to de-radicalize and offer a kind of alternative um, avenues, reintegrate people into society. Then there's prosecution, uh, which brings up various questions about if people are convicted and sentenced to prison terms, how do you handle them within the prison system? So as you want to minimize the danger of them of radicalizing other people in prison, because it's well known that that has been one of the leading venues for people to become radicalized in the past. And then there is clearly a, a large role for surveillance um, and other forms of kind of social control of one sort or another to flag up what people are up to and whether they really pose a danger or not. And then, the, I suppose, if we're listing all the options, the other option is simply to push the problem back by leaving them in the hands of the Syrian Democratic Forces and um, or um, to allow the Syrian forces to transfer them, as, as has happened in some cases, 
to Iraq. And obviously, Iraq is a somewhat different case because that is a recognized state with a, a legal system that is capable of holding prosecutions and uh, would be capable of imprisoning people. There are difficulties there around the death penalty, which perhaps we'll come on to. And then I suppose another example, an another possible option that European countries are looking at at the moment is this notion of setting up some sort of international court, international tribunal, like the tribunals that were set up in the aftermath of the conflict in the former Yugoslavia or in the aftermath of the genocide in Rwanda. And the idea would be these, this kind of body would be set up closer to where the crimes were committed. So it would be probably easier to uh, conduct successful prosecutions, where it's easier to lay your hands on the evidence and to get witnesses and to conduct investigations and so on. So that is another alternative. Um, and I think in that case, there may be a role for that, but I don't think it's going to provide a, a magical solution, again, for reasons we could explore. Um, I think that the number of cases that it's going to be able to handle uh, a tribunal of that sort would be comparatively limited, but it could be one element in what I think is inevitably going to be a kind of multi-pronged response. This is a, an easy thing to say, but a difficult thing to do. But clearly what's going to happen is a process of kind of sorting, uh, whereby the hundreds or even thousands of people that are out there are really divided into a number of different categories. Uh, some of them, perhaps, there will be a view that de-radicalization programs may work. And I think that's still, a, as it were, an open question how effective they can be. But I think that it's something that should certainly be tried and is worth a, a serious effort. Um, in other cases, probably prosecution is going to be, uh, you know, a more likely option. Um, in some cases, it may be that people are less committed to the beliefs um, and are more kind of disillusioned. And so I think we really need to try and assess exactly what we're dealing with in the different cases involved. And that's why I think a gradual approach is the way to go because that's a lengthy process and it involves a certain degree of experimentation with things like de-radicalization programs. Um, in other cases, it may be that people are simply going to be at large but subject to surveillance. There are a number of different options um, and perhaps some of these could be tried in combination. So yes, de-radicalization has, has a role to play. I don't think it's going to be a complete answer, but it's probably part of the approaches that should be tried. Treating each case individually may prove a substantial task. The 11 French nationals who have now been sentenced are just the tip of the iceberg. At least 450 French citizens who joined ISIS are believed to be in camps in Syria, along with hundreds of others from Western states across Europe, America, Australia and New Zealand. And that's to say nothing of the literally thousands of nationals from Arab states whose countries have very little appetite, or in many cases, the resources, to take them back. Even Iraq has had to establish a new judicial process to try the thousands of suspect members, collaborators and sympathisers that they've managed to lock up. The French trials have highlighted yet another issue with this. Is the process fair? Rights groups say that there's a lot to be worried about. They've recorded mass trials in which defendants are sentenced after mere minutes in front of a judge, and there are accusations that confessions are being extracted under torture. There's also very little access to lawyers or appeals processes. 45 prominent French defence lawyers signed a letter to the government in Paris accusing it of breaking the constitution by not intervening to take back the 11. 
but officials say that the trials have been fair, that they were carried out by a recognised authority, and it was a process in which they didn't take part. In Europe, the sense of betrayal we talked about is one of the reasons that governments are reluctant to repatriate accused ISIS members. When Begum was found in a camp in northern Syria, British officials made it clear that they would try to block her returning. The Home Secretary revoked her citizenship, although experts say that it's likely it won't stand up in court where the case is heard. So what can, and perhaps most importantly should, European governments be doing? Well, US President Donald Trump has made his views clear, telling countries to take responsibility for fighters and to try them at home. On Wednesday, the US announced that it was repatriating eight women and children with ISIS ties being held in Syria. But this is still the exception, not the rule. Hanif, who I spoke to earlier in the show, has worked on intervention programmes and de-radicalisation projects in the UK. He tells me about the climate in the country and how it's changing. There's a huge appetite amongst Middle England and Middle Britain that, you know, um, they've betrayed this nation and, and they, des- they don't deserve any remorse or any uh, kind of sympathy. Uh, and I understand that, fully appreciate that. But what I'm saying is that when we've got a case of young girls being groomed and radicalized to become sex slaves or being sexually exploited, up until the age of 40, 50, when they're coming out and they're talking about this, 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 they're deemed to be victims, right? Why don't we look at, when we start to look at these individuals as as victims to being groomed and radicalized and brainwashed, that's the only only time we're going to get a sense of how this needs to be tackled. But we're looking at it from a different lens. We're looking at it from a sense of betrayal, that betrayed our country because the appetite and the mood swing and the mood music and the political correctness is about anybody who goes and joins, uh, joins ISIS or Al-Qaeda or Jabhat al-Nusra. Well, they've betrayed this country and that's it. They need to be, they've made their bed and they need to line it. I disagree with that kind of an approach. One could easily say that the Prevent program in its current format has become so toxic that it's actually pushing away the very communities that we need to be working with. That doesn't help, and I, I, might, I was very vocal in that. Uh, even one of the, the MPs, Roy Stewart, said, you know, whatever they are, just kill them in situ. Basically, judge, jury, and executioners at the same time. The stance from UK government is not really helping us actually exacerbating the problem uh, even further, but also their approach to tackling extremism from a very moderate perspective. So in the UK, they've taken away funding from groups like ours because we were too risky and that we were dealing with high-risk individuals, but also because we were engaging with community, conservative communities who, when you engage with them, they want to be engaged separately, so segregation between men and women. And sometimes you have to facilitate that. Our government said, no, we don't want you to do that because you're promoting segregation. And my argument was that if you don't engage with the community, uh, or if you don't facilitate the segregation, then they're not going to engage. So the, the pushing away of the very communities that need to be engaged with by UK government is also causing and exacerbating the problem even further. And and it seems to be the case now that we're quite ignorant to the fact that although we believe or we say that ISIS has been destroyed destroyed or limited to what they can do, but we forget that there's an an emergence taking place, there's a networking taking place, and we've got the re-emergence and the reloaded of ISIS and Al-Qaeda and all the other groups. And that's going to be another significant battleground that's going to cause us a lot of problems in terms of preventing young people from being radicalized. So you don't think we've learned our lessons um, in, in how no, to stop I don't. this? I don't think we have. I don't think anybody has learned the lesson. And I think there's lots of programs taking place around the world. If you look at counter-extremism work, 
account of extremism with CVE work and prevent work around the world, you probably find there's thousands of, of individuals that all of a sudden become experts over the last five, six, seven years. Well, we've got much more counter-extremism think tanks and groups and organizations than we have terrorist networks and extremist groups. So why is the problem getting bigger? Why can't we not address it? We are failing to understand the nature of the beast. Hanif's experience questioned whether a repatriation policy can prevent further radicalization. And if not, whose responsibilities are these fighters? While the 11 Frenchmen can still appeal their conviction, and the order to carry out the sentence will have to be signed off by President Brahim Saleh, who may not do so, their case shows up some of the issues at play in this thorny and contentious debate. We're left with few good answers and only a handful of viable options. But as Hanif makes clear, the stakes are high, and if governments don't actively work on long-term solutions, both to stop people joining terror groups, but also how to handle ones that have, we're unlikely to see these issues go away. And the repercussions of that could be deadly. Thanks to my guests this week, Hanif Kadir, Anthony Dworkin, and Dr. Drew McKyle. This was Beyond the Headlines. Subscribe to the program by tapping the subscribe button in the podcast app. Follow more of our coverage on our website, www.thenational.ae. I've been your host, James Haynes-Young.